Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community please visit patreon.com slash talkingtutors for more information. When you join the patron family, you'll instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and take part in a member-only book club. They can also enter patron-only monthly giveaways to name but a few of the perks. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the podcast to chat about Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley is Karina Apostu. Karina is a history blogger and an independent researcher, of Elizabethan history with a focus on Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley. She graduated with an MA in Medieval and Early Modern Studies from the University of Kent in 2021. She currently runs the blog Exploring Elizabethan History on WordPress. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Karina. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. This is such an exciting opportunity. (laughs) Oh, yes, I've been looking forward to our conversation. So let's just begin with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Well, my name's Karina, Karina Pastu, and I'm an independent researcher and blogger of Elizabethan history with a specific focus on Queen Elizabeth herself and her notable favourite, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. As you can probably tell from my name and my accent, I'm not originally from England. I was born in Romania, but moved to Canada at a very young age, which is where I grew up and did most of my schooling. I received my bachelor's degree at the University of Toronto, where I did a double major in history and medieval studies. After a gap year, I moved to England where I pursue a Master of Arts at the University of Kent in Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Um, I completed my degree right in the thick of the 2020 COVID pandemic, which was extremely difficult, and my master's dissertation was on the death of the Earl of Leicester and how it affected the Elizabethan court. 
Currently, I work in administration, which is my day job, while I continue following my passion for history on the side. And at the moment, that is taking the form of a blog I run called Exploring Elizabethan History on WordPress, uh, where I post essays, opinions, interesting and useful sources. And I'm also planning on the odd piece of historical fiction of my own creation. Creative writing has been something of a passion of mine ever since I was a child, so this kind of felt like a natural progression. How wonderful. I didn't know you were a fiction writer as well. So that's very exciting. Um, so of course, Elizabeth and Robert Dudley, they're such fascinating characters. Mm. So what actually drew you to their story in the first place? Well, uh, apologies to the Earl of Leicester here, because my preoccupation with Elizabeth long predates my fascination with him. <laughs> uh, I always joke that I owe my entire academic career to Kate Blanchett, because it was Elizabeth the Golden Age, which kickstarted my obsession with the entire era. We had to watch the Tilbury speech scene in high school, which is where we were given a copy of the actual speech, or more accurately, a copy of the most famous version of the speech. And then we were tasked to write a short essay on the differences on why we thought the scriptwriter chose to make those alterations. I don't remember what I wrote, but I do remember how awestruck I was watching Kate portray Elizabeth in a suit of armor, red hair flowing and proudly astride a white steed like a figure from a heroic legend. I ran home after that and googled all I possibly could about Elizabeth and the rest, as they say, is history. Now years later, I actually have a far more critical opinion of that movie, but Kate Blanche's portrayal of Elizabeth still holds such a special place in my heart. And I remember distinctly that the first book on Elizabeth I ever read was Renaissance Prince by Lisa Hilton. Robert didn't warm his way into my brain until much later, around third year university in my undergrad. I had always known about him, but I, re I just kind of considered him another of Elizabeth's many favorites. And then I saw some discussion online about their unique relationship across forums and blogs and being a bit stunned by their apparent level of intimacy. A few people had highly recommended the historical novel called Legacy by Susan Kay as a great interpretation of their relationship. I read it and was absolutely enthralled by how passionate, toxic, and yet weirdly heartwarming the, the author portrayed them. Of course, her historical novels are not actual history, or, you know, some of them are wonderful, but, you know, they are meant to portray a story rather than fact. And in retrospect, this book also got a few things very wrong, but it lit the flame. Naturally, I wanted to know more about the real people because surely it wasn't that intense in real life, was it? So I picked up Sarah Griswood's fantastic book, Elizabeth and Lester, The Truth About the Virgin Queen and the Man She Loved, and quickly learned that, nope, they were just like that. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. From then on, I just started reading everything I could about them that I could get my hands on, them as individuals and as companions, for lack of a better word. Um, so academic books, popular history, historical fiction, you name it. I learned about how tightly woven the fates of the Dudleys and the Tudors were with each other. I learned about how long Elizabeth and Robert had known each other for and how their lives almost mirrored each other in the sense of neither of them were ever really meant to make it to the height of power, what with Elizabeth being third in line to the succession after her father and Robert having so many brothers ahead of him whose careers would have been prioritized. And yet through trial, adversity, and more than a little bit of cunning, they both did, almost in tandem. I learned how dedicated Robert was to Elizabeth and how much she loved him. 
it's an engrossing story. And the way the relationship essentially subverts ideas of 16th century gender roles is also so fascinating to me. It almost feels a bit modern in certain ways. But above all, what struck me most about Robert and Elizabeth more than anything is the sheer longevity of their relationship, especially in a time period as uncertain as that one. Most English favorites' lives are like shooting stars. They burn brightly, but only for a short time, and then the vast majority of them met sticky ends. Robert broke the mold by stubbornly remaining on the scene of English politics, even as his favor with Elizabeth ebbed and flowed, sometimes dramatically so. And most impressively, he managed to die relatively peacefully in his bed, with his monarch's love and favor still intact. That is quite rare in the history of English royal favorites, and when you read about their bond from the historical sources, you really understand why. That being said, theirs is not an easy relationship. Sarah Gristwood said to herself in her book, this is no easy Romeo and Juliet love story. Robert's devotion was bellied by his ambition, and Elizabeth's love for him was tempered by her need for independence, autonomy, and control. His marriages and affairs strained their bond, as did Elizabeth's favor to others and her sharp rebukes to his pride, not to mention their passion for each other hurt others around them, whether directly or indirectly. Their unique relationship fascinates and even enthralls me from a narrative's perspective, and there were certainly positive aspects about it. But overall, I would absolutely not use them as a form of relationship goals by any means. Please be kinder to your partners than Elizabeth and Robert were to each other. Love it. And I love your enthusiasm. It's certainly coming <laughs> through. It, it is an intriguing and fascinating friendship and relationship. Mm. And, and I'm excited to talk more about it. So yeah. I suppose a question that lots of people have when they think about Elizabeth and Robert Dudley is when did they first meet? You know, this is mm -hmm. this is one of those questions you see debated online. Some people say one thing, others say another thing. Historians yeah. can't agree. So what do you think, Karina? When do you think they actually met? Yeah, precisely. For for such a simple question, it doesn't have a simple answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> um I actually made a lengthy post, post about this on my blog, so um, I humbly recommend checking it out if you'd like a proper deep dive into the question. Uh, but for now, we know that they've known each other since childhood, but how close they were during this time is less certain. In 1566, Robert was speaking with the nephew of the French ambassador named, pardon my French here, quite literally, Jacob de Volcoub, I believe, about this, and he was speaking to him about the subject of Elizabeth's marriage. And during this conversation, Robert apparently said that in his opinion, he thought the queen would never marry because, quote, he knew the queen as well or better than anyone else close to her, having become friendly with her before before she was eight years old. This is really the only direct evidence we have of Robert and Elizabeth being friends when they were children. If Robert is being truthful here, then we have to imagine that they were close enough that Elizabeth felt comfortable enough confessing something so personal to him at a young age. The problem is, we really only have Robert's word to go off of here, and he may have been embellished in order to throw the French ambassador off the scent of a potential dynastic marriage with Elizabeth. Elizabeth herself never mentioned any childhood friendship, nor, it seemed, did anyone else, and she had been quite vocal for years about not wanting to get married, so Robert could have been making an educated guess. That being said, there is circumstantial evidence to support Robert's claim. The Dudley family has always been closely linked to the Tudor dynasty, going all the way back to Henry VII. Jane Dudley, Robert's mother, had been part of Anne's privy bedchamber, although the exact nature of her role is unclear. Nevertheless, they ran in similar circles as they were both reformers, and John Dudley eventually became quite favoured by Henry VIII, and his son Robert served Prince Edward directly, eventually becoming a gentleman of the privy chamber and master of the Buckhounds during the young king's reign. As Edward 
Edward was Elizabeth's brother and the siblings appeared to be close, it doesn't require a stretch of the imagination to presume that Elizabeth and Robert would have had, would have known each other from a young age and would have been friendly with each other when they were at court together. It's also worth noting at that point in time, whilst Henry VIII still lived, the children were quite low on the totem pole of importance. Robert was the fifth son of a Viscount and Elizabeth was arguably the least significant of Henry VIII's children. If they ever played games together as children, I highly doubt any contemporary would bother making note of it. They could not see the future, after all. That is as confident of a claim as I'm willing to make. Any notion that they shared lessons together must be dismantled, I'm afraid. They shared a tutor in Roger Ashram, but there is no evidence to say that they ever shared their lessons together. Their difference in gender and rank would have undoubtedly kept them apart in that respect. Still, Elizabeth was noted as being, quote, of their kidney when it came to the Dudleys, likely meaning that they held similar opinions in terms of religion. This further supports the theory that pre-Jane Grey's coup, Elizabeth and the Dudleys got along well with each other. Not to mention, John Dudley helped to settle Elizabeth's inheritance from her father after the Duke of Somerset fell from grace. He also once defended Elizabeth's position against preference being shown to Mary by foreign ambassadors. The paucity of evidence that is given to us uh, for the end of Henry VIII's reign and the whole of Edward VI's reign suggests that Elizabeth and the Dudleys were on good terms with each other. Therefore, the idea of Elizabeth and Robert being friends as children is not so far-fetched, in my opinion. Also, it's worth mentioning that if Robert was stretching the truth by claiming he and Elizabeth had been friends as children, it was something the French ambassador could quite easily correct by just asking around. Blanche Perry, for example, was still alive after all, and she had known and took care of Elizabeth since she was a baby. It's really interesting. So there were obviously some connections there that make it plausible, mm. it sounds yes. like. Um, and yes, do exactly. we know then anything else about their relationship before she becomes queen? Oh, frustratingly very little when in yeah. comparison to how much we have when they're adults. <laughs> As mentioned, they were likely friendly with each other during Edward's reign, but we have no surviving evidence that explicitly states how close and to what extent they were friends, or what their interactions were even like. Elizabeth may have attended Robert's wedding to Ro Amy Robsart in 1550, but even this isn't certain. Edward definitely attended, as he notes it in his diary, but frustratingly, he doesn't mention the names of anyone who attended besides the men who participated in a celebratory joust. <laughs> Keep in mind, he's a young boy, so that's probably all he's interested in. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth's surviving household accounts before she was queen begin in 1551, so unfortunately we don't have records of her spending habits in 1550 to match up with her potential being a wedding guest. Still, it may be safe to assume that if her brother attended the wedding, she likely did as well. If she did, her presence seemed to have been a little consequence as nobody commented on it. And it may have been the only time Elizabeth ever met Amy Robsart to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the Jane Grey fiasco happened, Edward, and for those who don't know a small summary, Edward moves his half-sisters Mary Elizabeth from Mary and Elizabeth from the succession and declares that their cousin Jane should inherit instead. Robert's father, now the Duke of Northumberland, supports this and puts the king's device into action. Unsurprisingly, Jane was already married to his younger son, Guildford. The Dudley family stood to obtain a huge amount of power here. Whatever prior friendship Elizabeth and Robert might have had, it was not yet strong enough for Robert to prioritize over his family's ambition, and we must imagine that it would have been strained to breaking point. This, then, makes it all the more remarkable that Elizabeth and Robert were already on very good terms by the time that Elizabeth is proclaimed clean in November 1558. 
Elizabeth's right to the throne was one of the single most important things in her life, and now here she was, getting along with a man who had once actively worked against it. So what happened? Because it really feels like we're missing a few chapters here. Annoyingly, there's a distinct lack of surviving sources relating to Robert and Elizabeth's relationship during Mary's reign, and we must rely on vague clues and educated guesses. As is well known, they were both incarcerated in the tower at the time, and this alone might have fostered a bond between them, as few people share such a harrowing experience and live to tell the tale. Uh, William Candon, a near contemporary, mused that perhaps this was part of the root of their attachment to each other. After they were both released from their respective prisons, there's a small chance that their past might have crossed at court, but I don't think they could have had any meaningful interactions here. Not when Elizabeth was being watched so closely and Robert was still distrusted by the Queen. Him and his brothers were only welcomed there by virtue of King Philip's favour. If they exchanged any letters at any point, these have not survived the test of time either. Professor Simon Adams, one of the leading historians on the subject of Robert Dudley, has posited that he and Elizabeth may have been based relatively close together whilst in the countryside, and this may have facilitated communications between the two. If they did meet, then they did so in utmost secrecy, as it was not picked up by any contemporaries. Then there's the possibility that Robert may have financially supported Elizabeth. This is a claim that was repeated by two different contemporaries in Europe, John Dimmock and Hubert Languid, when they were both asked in 1651 why Elizabeth was so attached to Robert. According to Dimmock and Languid, Robert sold some of his possessions, and Dimmock specifies it as a piece of land, in order to send some money to Elizabeth during Mary's reign. We don't have any paper chair for this. But one would imagine that Robert would not want to flaunt that he, a once convicted traitor, was sending money to the very controversial heir to the throne. In her book, The House of Dudley by Dr. Joanne Paul, uh, she suggests the possibility that Robert might have squirreled away some of the money he raised for King Philip's wars in France to Elizabeth. This money, after all, was raised by selling or mortgaging the paucity of land left to him by his mother's will via his older brother Ambrose. Without any hard evidence, though, this isn't something we can prove. Still, money often and speaks louder than words, so it's a compelling theory. Whether through groveling, charming, or financial means, Robert had managed to warm his way into Elizabeth's good graces, even after his father's coup nearly made them necessary enemies. Perhaps he sufficiently explained himself to her, and perhaps Elizabeth decided that it was best to let bygones be bygones after they had both lost so much. Either way, it's clear that Elizabeth had decided to forgive him, and that Robert had proved his new devotion to her interests. It's just a shame we don't know exactly how it came about. <laughs> it is. Nothing's ever simple with Tudor history, unfortunately. Mm. Um, let's just go back to that event. You said that they were in the Tower at the same time, and of course we often see this depicted in popular culture. It's in, you know, The Virgin Queen, one of my favourite series about Elizabeth. Of course they're mm. both there. Do you personally think that they had time to correspond or that there was any kind of interaction while they were there? Oh, if only. <laughs> that would undoubtedly make for a tense and highly charged scene. My historical fiction figures are just itching to write it. Uh, but, but alas, the reality is that they almost certainly didn't. The legend of Robert and Elizabeth meeting in the tower is largely born out of the erroneous belief that Elizabeth was held in the bell tower, which coincidentally is connected by a simple walkway to the Beecham Tower, which is where Robert was confined. But in reality, Elizabeth was not held in the bell tower, but rather the royal apartments, which is where her mother, Anne Boleyn, stayed in before for her coronation as well as her own as execution. This was a completely different building, entirely unconnected from the Beecham Tower, so the odds of Elizabeth and Robert meeting this way are slim to none. Not to mention, Robert sometimes received visits from his wife Amy. That being said, 
The tower's security was not foolproof. In May 1554, when Elizabeth and Robert were both in the tower, the diplomat Simon Renard reported to the Holy Roman Emperor that another prisoner in the tower, Edward Courtenay, had tried to communicate with Elizabeth via a five-year-old child who was apparently the son of one of the tower soldiers who lived there. Courtenay had been the subject of the same rebellion that landed Elizabeth in hot water. Wyatt's rebellion sought to displace Queen Mary from the throne and replace her with Elizabeth, who would be married to Edward Courtenay. Courtenay, then, was just of a high-priority prisoner as Elizabeth, arguably higher than Robert, who had languished there for months on end by now. And yet, he had managed to establish the most rudimentary form of communication with Elizabeth, even if he was ultimately caught. Earlier, Simon Renard also mentioned that there were suspicions that the lieutenant of the tower was a heretic, and therefore potentially sympathetic to Elizabeth's cause. Had he perhaps turned a blind eye to some minor attempts at communication with the heir to the throne? Would Robert have tried the same thing? Ultimately, there isn't any evidence that Robert and Elizabeth did manage to meet or communicate in the tower, but the notion isn't completely impossible. There was evidently a precedent for clandestine communication, and a sympathetic guard can go a long way. Just think of Catherine Grey in Elizabeth's reign, who managed to conceive a child with her equally imprisoned husband, even though they were supposed to be kept apart from each other. Some security! Yes, that that is an an interesting situation, isn't it? Goodness. All right, so let's fast forward now to Elizabeth's Mm -hmm. accession. So she's on the throne now. She's queen. Talk to us a little bit about Dudley's appointment as master of the horse. Oh, well, Robert's appointment as master of the horse was one of the first actions that Elizabeth took as queen, which suggests that he might have already been at Hatfield when the Great Seal was surrendered to her. Legend has it that he arrived on a white steed, which is certainly (laughs) an evocative image. (laughs) As I mentioned before, though, uh, Robert was observed by the Count of Feria to be on, quote, very good terms with Elizabeth, which meant that whatever effort Robert had put in to endear himself to her had worked. But we should not think that Elizabeth had given the position of master of the horse to Robert out of sheer affection. It was clear that he was the best man for the job regardless. Both his brother and his father had previously been masters of the horse, and Robert had proved himself a capable master of the buckhounds during Edward's reign as well. Robert was an expert horse rider, had a good eye for horse flesh, and he had a knack for performance and administrative management, all qualities which are imperative for this position. The master of the horse not only looked after the care and breeding of the royal stables, but the royal progress and official entertainments would also fall under his jurisdiction to coordinate, especially where travel was involved. Elizabeth's coronation procession through London, for example, was partially Robert's responsibility to organize. Wherever the monarch went on a horse, the master of the horse usually had to be there too. This was a crucial role, and Robert was more than qualified for the tasks. Since it was such an early decision, it's most likely that Elizabeth and Robert had discussed and agreed upon it beforehand. Indeed, no one bat an eyelid when Robert was given this position, because at the time, there seemed to be nothing untoward about it. The position of Master of the Horse also allowed for a great deal of physical contact with the Queen. It was his job, for example, to physically lift Elizabeth on and off her horse. Past Masters of the Horse did this with the expected respect and discretion. But by April 1559, Robert and Elizabeth's apparent intimacy with each other was starting to make tongues wag across court, and all of a sudden, his access to the Queen's body by means of his official role didn't seem so innocent anymore. No. And all that dancing mm. they did together wouldn't have helped. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so it does make you think, though, that if one of her first things, you know, she becomes queen, she appoints him master of the horse, that there was obviously an established relationship between them. Obviously, we still don't know how far mm. back it went, but it does make you 
you know, it does make it very plausible that there was yeah, some sort of friendship, right? That that just seems most reasonable to me. I don't yeah. think it came out of nothing. <laughs> no, exactly. It doesn't seem like that. So he mm. served her as master of the horse. Did he have any other formal appointments? And what other capacities did he serve her in? He did indeed. So alongside being master of the horse, Robert also held a number of different political positions as Elizabeth's reign progressed. Firstly, he was appointed a privy councillor soon after Elizabeth recovered from smallpox. This alone flies in the face of the notion that Elizabeth raised Robert's position solely on the fact that she was besotted with him. She had waited until he proved himself trustworthy and capable of the position. Her brush with death in 1562 might have been the final nudge she needed. As a councillor, he could now officially give her advice in matters of state. Although in practice, he had already been doing this in private even beforehand. This also meant that he was now part of the Privy Council meetings, which he diligently attended. I believe only Cecil attended more meetings than Robert did, which is not surprising. He took this role incredibly seriously. It should be noted as well that the idea of Elizabeth's council in court being rife with factionalism is an overstated and outdated one. Elizabeth's council has now been determined to be one of remarkable, if occasionally reluctant, cooperation. Certainly not all the men got along. Robert and Thomas Radcliffe, the Earl of Sussex, were particularly bitter rivals. But they all had one common goal, which was service to their queen. Elizabeth herself was skilled at ensuring lines of division did not flare into dangerous factionalism. A few years after he was appointed Privy Councillor, Robert was also raised to the peerage as Earl of Leicester and Baron Denby. As an Earl, he now had just about suitable rank to be matched with the Queen. But in a bewildering turn of events, it was to Mary Queen of Scots that Elizabeth proposed he be matched with rather than herself. Mary was at first offended at the offer of who she considered to be Elizabeth's cast-off, but then she entertained the idea on the condition that she be called Elizabeth's heir. Robert, for his part, was not keen and even wrote to Queen Mary himself to dissuade her from the match. If Robert really was just in it for the power, you would think he would have jumped at the chance. But clearly, he did not want to leave Elizabeth or his position in England. As for Elizabeth, it's uncertain how serious she was about this idea. If she had been earnest about it, then there were signs that she was already pained at the idea of losing Robert to Mary. Fortunately for both of them, it came to nothing. Later in life, Robert also served Elizabeth as Governor General in the Netherlands, and this was a contentious position for him. Robert had longed to serve Elizabeth militarily and had been a vocal supporter of intervention in the Netherlands, which was being choked by Catholic Spain. As after much prevarication, Elizabeth finally let him make the expedition to the Netherlands with an army behind him, but he was under strict orders to not accept any sovereignty on her behalf and to not engage with Spain in any hostility. The English presence were there for defense and defense only. Problem was, once Robert got there, for him to have any real authority, he needed to have some sort of official position, an elevation. The Estates General were only too eager to offer him the title of Governor General, which he was only too eager to accept. Effectively, this made him ruler of the Netherlands in Elizabeth's name. Precisely what she told him not to do. <laughs> Knowing full well how much she would disapprove of this, Robert wrote out his reasoning as quick as he could and sent William Davidson to deliver the message to the Queen. Unfortunately, Awful weather across the channel severely delayed Davison's journey, and by the time he finally made it to court, Elizabeth had already heard what Robert did, and she was absolutely livid. Made worse by the fact that to her, it seemed that Robert had not even bothered to explain himself, and she had to learn about it from others. Elizabeth demanded that he give up the title, and it took the combined efforts of her counselors to get her to relent. If Robert gave up the government general title, then he would have no more authority than any other person in the Netherlands, and nothing could get done. In an effort to clear his name, Robert rather uncharitably threw Davison under the bus by accusing him of misrepresenting the situation, and Davison bristled at the accusation. 
Ultimately, Elizabeth let him keep the title, and her anger eventually cooled. In fact, if you read her letters to him in this time, you can quite literally see the progression of her anger ebbing away until she finally starts calling him Rob again in her letters. But she refused to send over more money and troops, even though they were desperately needed. Faced with no official support from his queen and a severe lack of funds, despite using his own money to pay for the troops, rank corruption among the officers and Robert's general inexperience managing an entire army, the Netherlands expeditions ended up being something of a fizzle rather than a bang. It was not Robert's finest hour. Despite his lackluster performance in the Netherlands, Elizabeth was relieved when Robert returned to England, welcoming him back warmly. Robert barely had any time to recuperate, though, because the next item on the agenda was dealing with the incoming Spanish Armada. The execution of Mary Queen of Scots ramped up Spanish aggression against England, and now they had to prepare for war. Robert acted as lieutenant general, and he was tasked with amassing forces at Tilbury, which he did effectively. It was Robert who encouraged Elizabeth to visit the troops at Tilbury to boost morale, writing to her that, quote, you shall comfort not only these thousands, but many more that shall hear of it. When he heard that Elizabeth had agreed to do so, he was delighted. Whilst they were there, news reached them that the Armada had been scattered by a combination of English naval efforts and bad weather. But the Duke of Parma, ready with his land army, was still a potential threat, and so English soldiers still needed to be bolstered and prepared. It was in Robert's tent that Elizabeth stayed while she visited Tilbury, and he stood proudly next to her, leading her horse as Elizabeth gave her famous rousing speech. Almost everyone knows the famous line, I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. But what is less often emphasized is that Elizabeth directly references Robert in the speech as well. She says, In the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be in my stead, than whom never a prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject and she commands her subjects to obey him as they would obey her. The speech was a rousing success, and later Robert positively gushed about it in a letter to the Earl of Shrewsbury, where he effuses that, Our gracious mistress hath been here with me to see her camp and people, which so inflame the hearts of her good subjects, as I think the weakest person among them is able to match the proudest Spaniard that dare langs in England. The Tilbury speech is widely considered one of Elizabeth's greatest moments, and it was Robert who ensured that it happened. After the defeat of the Armada, Robert was flying so high in Elizabeth's favour again as she dined with him privately and frequently when they returned to London, which a contemporary remarked was, quote, a thing they say such as never been seen in this country before, as Elizabeth usually preferred to dine alone. Robert began his career at court as a handsome master of the horse in a scandalous flirtation with the Queen, and ended it as one of Elizabeth's closest and most trusted advisors, companions, and friend. Yes, it does appear that she could not stay cranky at him for too long. That's, that's no. for sure. <laughs> he certainly must have had some charm, I have to say. So mm. um, let's go, let's turn the clock back a little bit and, and talk a little bit about Amy Robsart, which was, of course, Dudley's wife. In case our listeners aren't familiar with that episode, tell us a little bit about the death of Amy and what effect this actually had on Elizabeth and Dudley's relationship. Oh, yes, this is a very dramatic portion of their life, that's for sure. I'll have to do a deep dive about this on my blog sometime, but here's an overview. By the time Elizabeth became queen, Robert and Amy had been married for almost 10 years. For such a long marriage, we know remarkably little about the life together. So much of this is down to speculation. We know that Amy was the daughter of a Norfolk knight and landowner, and that the relative disparity in their social statuses makes it likely that it was a love match, at least in the beginning. 
For the first few years, Robert and Amy seem to have a perfectly normal marriage until Robert is arrested for aiding his father in the Jane Grey coup. Amy was given leave to visit Robert in prison occasionally, but she would not have been able to understand the maddening grind of imprisonment herself. It's possible that Robert's experience of grief, loss, and imprisonment changed him into a man perhaps different to the one that Amy married as a youth, one she could not relate to as easily. One of the two letters from Amy, which survives, tells of her sadness of her husband's absence. This was when Robert went to fight in France for Philip II of Spain. Upon Elizabeth's accession, Robert's priority had quite clearly shifted to the new queen. Alongside possibly growing more emotionally distant from his wife, they also never managed to have children. As Robert eventually did sire two sons in the future, it's likely that Amy struggled with fertility issues. As Robert grew more attached to the queen, and vice versa, Amy remained in the countryside, often staying with family friends. She was not, as commonly thought, completely abandoned by Robert. His household accounts show that he occasionally did visit her and he would also, from time to time, send home gifts for her. And though Elizabeth certainly would not have been comfortable having Amy near her, it was not common for courtiers to have their wives living them at court anyways, unless they themselves were serving the queen. There was a very real issue of lack of accommodation. <laughs> but all was not well for Amy. In the first year of Elizabeth's reign, reports reached various ambassadors that Amy was suffering from a malady in her breast, possibly a form of breast cancer. Others passed on more salacious gossip that Lord Robert and or the Queen were planning on poisoning Amy to be rid of her and therefore facilitate their own marriage. Astoundingly, it was Cecil himself who seemed to be spreading these rumors. Speaking lowly to the Spanish Armada de Quadra, he claimed that the stories of Amy being ill were false and that Robert was planning to murder Amy in order to marry the Queen. How Cecil could possibly know of Amy's true health is anyone's guess, and also, if he was genuinely believed that Robert was about to murder his own wife, would he not have sounded the alarm to someone other than the Spanish ambassador? Surely it would make more sense to, I don't know, go directly to the queen? <laughs> the fact that he's only confiding in the Spanish ambassador smacks of him trying to stir the pot to blacken Robert's name, who he disliked at this point. Shockingly, even Elizabeth herself spoke of it. A day after the Quadra spoke with Cecil, the Queen confided in him that she knew Amy to be, quote, dead or nearly so. Confessing to planned murder to an ambassador would be absolute insanity, and we know Elizabeth was fairly sensible, so we can safely rule that possibility out. It seems more likely that Elizabeth knew Amy to be ill and was not expecting her to live long. This could be an indication that Elizabeth was perhaps nursing a tentative hope that she might be able to marry Robert after all. More on that later. It's unclear when exactly these conversations took place, but Amy's death appeared to follow quite soon after, as the Quadra had to update this within the same letter, the news of her death. Most alarmingly, Amy had not died from illness, as Elizabeth might have expected. She had been found at the bottom of the stairs in Cumnor Place with a broken neck and wounds to her head. Of course, everyone cried murder and pointed their fingers at Robert, but the details are fuzzy. For one thing, Amy behaved strangely on the day that she died. She ordered all her servants to attend the nearby fair, but many did not want to leave as it was a Sunday and they would rather stay in to pray. But Amy grew agitated and angry when they refused. Eventually, they did leave her alone, except for, I believe, one woman who was in a different room. In the weeks beforehand, Amy's maid Alice Picto divulged that her mistress occasionally had bouts of melancholy and would pray daily to God to deliver her from desperation. 
When Alice realized the implication of her own words, she panicked and backpedaled. Suicide was considered a cardinal sin, and Amy's soul would be considered damned for all eternity, nor could she be buried in consecrated ground. It doesn't require a stretch of the imagination to suppose that Amy might have been suffering from depression or some other form of poor mental health. She rarely saw her husband, who she must have loved once upon a time, and probably still did. She must have heard the salacious rumors about him and the Queen coming from court, and she was possibly suffering and maybe even dying from a painful disease she could not understand. Some historians point to a letter written not too long before her death in which she is ordering a new dress as proof that she was not depressed. But I find this to be a very flimsy argument which shows a lack of understanding about the complexity of mental health. Many of those who suffer from depression have become adept at masking for the sake of others and it's very possible to appear merry in writing while suffering in person. If Amy was suffering from cancer then this might have also led to her bones becoming quite brittle. A bad fall down the stairs could conceivably break her neck and kill her, especially if she landed on or badly hit her head on the way down. If it's not obvious by now, I lean much more to the suicide or accident theory than the murder theory. Death by falling down the stairs is not as rare as you might suppose. In fact, quite recently, Two high-profile deaths happened in this exact manner, Ivana Trump and Park Soo-ryun, a Korean actress. The former died from blunt force impact to the torso, and the latter was brain dead by the time she reached the hospital. And both these women were otherwise healthy when they died which Amy might not have been. If it was murder, I don't believe it's likely that Robert was involved. When the news of his wife's death broke, he was absolutely bewildered and appalled. He ordered the inquest into her death immediately and was anxious to ensure it was all done correctly. He even ensured that Amy's half-brother was part of it so that it was clear he had nothing to hide. Elizabeth also acted fast and sent Robert away from court until results of the inquiry were made public. The official verdict came back as an accident, which officially cleared his name, but Robert was anxious to have a second inquiry as the even he was stressed that someone had murdered his wife. One could say that perhaps he doth protest too much, but as Joanne Paul said, you have to follow the power. What does Robert gain from murdering Amy? Nothing other than scandal and infamy. Amy's suspicious death effectively doomed any chance Robert had of marrying the Queen rather than facilitating it. Marrying him now would bring Elizabeth international and local condemnation and scorn. Mary Queen of Scots sneered that Elizabeth marry her horse master who had killed his wife to make room in his bed for her. Others in the French court openly wondered, What religion is this that a subject shall kill his wife and the prince not only bear with all, but marry with him? Aside from there being no evidence other than rumors for those predisposed against him that Robert held any murderous intent toward the woman he once loved, he would have been smart enough to realize that doing so would get him nowhere, especially if he knew her to be ill unto death. All he had to do was wait. <laughs> Cecil has been suggested as a possible murder suspect, and while this would certainly explain his cryptic conversation with De Quadra, it seems an extremely drastic measure for the usually cautious Cecil to take, no matter how much he hated Robert and his ascendancy in the beginning. If Amy was murdered, I think it would have been organized by one of the many men around court who were disgruntled and jealous of Robert's growing power, as it would serve to blacken his name forever. If this is the case, it certainly worked. The scandal dogged Robert for the rest of his life and for posterity. As for Elizabeth, this whole experience left her shaken and perhaps determined not to marry Robert after all. And that didn't prevent her from resuming her intimacy with him after some time had passed along.
Yes, it doesn't appear to have served them in any way. So I, I tend to mm. agree with the theories that say that he didn't have anything to do with it. That makes yeah. no sense to me. So it feels a bit be- too soap opera y. <laughs> oh, yes. Goodness. We do know the Tudor period is a bit soap opera. But- yeah, that's yeah. true, to be fair. <laughs> Even that's a bit too much. So um, you, you've talked, obviously, about the fact that there were many ups and downs with this relationship over the years. So, And you've told us about some of those challenges that they face. But are there any more that you want to mention? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Their relationship was not harmonious from start to finish, and most of their falling out came from Robert meddling in politics that Elizabeth did not like, or behaving arrogantly towards one of her other favorites. This usually caused fierce, sometimes very public rows, which often ended in Robert being banished from court, or at the very least, him being sequestered to his apartments. It always ended the same way, though, with Robert returning and the two of them reconciling before the cycle began all over again, rinse and repeat. Robert, too, could grow frustrated with his demanding mistress. He clearly felt very passionately about her, but was becoming impatient with her constant bait-and-switch tactics. The Reformation also changed attitudes towards celibacy. What was once considered a higher level of spirituality was now considered unhealthy for the body, and Robert was not a man designed to live amongst life. While still close with the Queen, his eyes began to drift elsewhere in the late 1560s and early 1570s for physical fulfillment. If he and Elizabeth have ever indulged in any form of sexual intimacy, one can imagine it had probably petered out by now. This came in the form of Lady Douglas Sheffield, recently weddled and now smitten with the Earl of Leicester. Just like with Amy, though, we know surprisingly little about their affair. We don't know exactly when it began, and there is only one contemporary source mentioning that Douglas and her sister were both far in love with the Earl. But as far as I know, it is only Douglas that Robert was involved with. The majority of what we know comes from a letter that Robert wrote to a lady. It does not name the lady, but context clues within it make it clear that it is Douglas. It's a pretty classic situation. Robert made it clear to Douglas when they first began their affair that she could not expect marriage from him. At the time, Robert wrote that he would rather never have a wife than lose Elizabeth's favor and risk his entire undoing. Douglas clearly had hoped she could change his mind with time, but she hoped in vain. This letter appeared to have been written before their son was born, as it does not refer to him at all. For what it's worth, Elizabeth tolerated Douglas's place in Robert's life remarkably well. She seemed to be employing her see-no-evil, hear-no-evil, speak-no-evil tactic. She even gifted Douglas a gown when the latter was six months pregnant. Elizabeth seemed to understand that Robert needed to take his pleasure elsewhere. It was marriage to another woman that she could not abide by, for that meant that his priorities would have changed. The lack of information regarding their affair tells me that they were being as discreet as possible. Robert was not trying to hurt Elizabeth or make her jealous with Douglas. From the looks of the letter, it may have even been an on-again, off-again sort of arrangement. If Robert had an official mistress who he paid court to regularly, believe me, we'd know about it. (laughs) The affair probably came to an end around the time that their son, Sir Robert Dudley, was born in 1574. Robert delighted in his son, and he took full responsibility for him, ensuring that he received a stellar education. But no matter how much he loved his son, he was still illegitimate. This might have caused Robert to change his mind about risking the Queen's wrath to have a family. It was Robert's life ambition to restore the Dudley name back to glory and to pass the family name down to the next generation. He had the same dynastic ambition as almost all 16th century men, but the sources also show us a genuinely paternal side of Robert. His account books are littered with him giving money to the little children, once a girl setting strawberries, once to a boy who had slipped and fallen on ice outside of the window of his house, and when in the Netherlands, 
he was noted as being very kind to the little daughter of, of one of the officials. When he did remarry, he treated his stepchildren as though they were his own. Aside from wanting to pr proliferate the House of Dudley, he seemed to genuinely love children and craved to be a father. And if Elizabeth was not willing to be the mother of his children, well, he would just have to find someone else. And that someone else was Latisse Knowles. He had flirted with her once many years ago when she was still married to the Earl of Essex and pregnant at the time. But that apparently had been a ploy to make the Queen jealous as she was doing the same thing to him with Thomas Hennage. The Knowles and the Dudleys had been in each other's orbits for a long time, so he and Latisse's past may have crossed a few times, notably when she visited him at Kenilworth. But nothing untoward seemed to happen between them. Latisse was considered one of the best-looking ladies in the court, and surely Robert must have noticed this. And when you look at the few portraits of Latisse that do survive, you may notice a marked resemblance to Elizabeth, which is not altogether surprising. Latisse was related to her through maternal cousinhood. So, for that matter, was Douglas. <laughs> Robert really didn't like to stray far from Elizabeth, did he? Latisse was intelligent, vivacious, and pleasant company, which Robert would have certainly been attracted to. When his hopes to marry the Queen were finally and utterly put to rest after the 1575 Kenilworth festivities, widely regarded as being Robert's final marriage proposal to Elizabeth, he married Latisse in 1578. And that's when all hell breaks loose. <laughs> or more accurately, a year later, all hell breaks loose. The wedding was conducted in secret with only a few witnesses, such as Roger North and Latisse's father, Francis Knowles. Of course, Robert had not dared to ask for permission, for even doing so would have likely risked disfavor. But going behind the Queen's back was incredibly risky and served to make matters worse. Word eventually spread around court of the Earl's remarriage, but nobody was willing to break the news to Elizabeth, not even his enemies, who may have otherwise relished his downfall. Such was the fear of her inevitable wrath. Robert's marriage were kept quiet for a year, and we can see, I think, evidence of a potential guilty conscience. He was writing to ask after a health on what should have been his honeymoon. When the marriage was dramatically revealed by Jean de Simier, the Duke of Anjou's envoy, Elizabeth was beside herself with rage. Reports that she wanted Robert sent to the tower in a fit of fury may have been exaggerated, but he was certainly persona non grata at court for a time. Latisse was banished entirely, and Elizabeth never wanted to see her again. From then on, she referred to her derisively as that she-wolf. Obviously, Elizabeth didn't handle the situation very well. On one hand, it was unreasonable for her to expect Robert to forego marriage and children when he desperately wanted them, when she was not willing to give that to him. On the other hand, Elizabeth's hurt can be understood to a certain extent when looking at it through her perspective. Robert had been one of the few men who she felt completely at ease around, a person she knew for so long who she looked to for friendship, advice, comfort, and emotional fulfillment. Historians have since argued that Robert had essentially filled the role of a surrogate husband or an unofficial consort, and this was a role that Robert himself had knowingly and willingly cultivated. By marrying someone else, it was the public transfer of his affections elsewhere, and perhaps Elizabeth fe feared that he would no longer prioritize her. As for Latisse, her betrayal too must have felt like an almighty stab in the back. Elizabeth had adored the Knowles family, and she had heaped favor upon them. Latisse had once been a lady of the bedchamber, and she may have even stayed with Elizabeth during Mary's reign when her family fled to the continent for safety, as posited by Latisse's biographer Nicola Tallis. If I were Elizabeth, I think I would be thinking thinking something along the lines of, after all I've done for you, after all the favor I bestowed upon you, this is how you repay me? <laughs> this may be me projecting, but I truly think that if it was anyone other than Latisse, it would not have hurt this badly. Elizabeth would have been furious either way, but this one really stung in a way that none of the other ladies marrying without permission did. 
all of those other unauthorized marriages were an affront to Elizabeth's authority as queen, but this was personal. Robert did eventually return to court, but he was compelled to never breathe a word of his wife around Elizabeth. This understandably rankled him, and he would air his frustrations to his colleagues instead. This was probably the lowest moment of their relationship, and yet the storm too would eventually pass. Elizabeth finally softened when Robert's young son by Latisse, little Lord Denby, tragically died at the age of around three years old. Elizabeth was not so callous that she could not feel empathy for Robert grieving such a devastating loss, and she sent him a message of heartfelt condolence. The condolence, however, did not extend to Latisse. She had been completely removed from the Queen's heart, and there was no room for forgiveness. Still, Robert deeply appreciated Elizabeth's comfort, and it was to Hatton that he wrote that, I have lived and and so will die, only hers. If Elizabeth was concerned that Robert would no longer prioritize her, she needn't have worried. Robert clearly loved Latisse. He held much in store by her, and if someone was introduced to her, that meant you were high in favor with him. But Elizabeth remained his top priority. One of the only times Robert put Latisse's needs above Elizabeth's was when their son died, and he left court without permission to be by her side. To Elizabeth's credit, she understood. But otherwise, Robert remained devoted in service to Elizabeth. The passionate love of their youth had morphed into a strong and enduring companionship. He was less an entertaining courtier now and more of a political advisor and counselor, but that undercurrent of friendship was still intact. He still cared deeply for Elizabeth, and devotion was not something he could shake off easily. He wasn't willing, for example, to let Latisse remove any of the Queen's portraits in their home. She only did so after he died. I am admittedly not Latisse's biggest fan, but I do have to tip my hat off to her because this could not have been easy to deal with. Suffering the Queen's intense hostility, alongside having to accept and live with the fact that you are always going to be second fiddle to your own husband is a bitter pill to swallow. That is incredibly, incredibly tough. Yes. And mm. goodness me, Elizabeth could hold a grudge, couldn't she? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, but you know what's interesting? She she was also very good at forgiveness. Remarkably good. And she was good at not assigning blame to those whose families had did something bad to them. So this is actually almost an anomaly how furious she was yeah. and how long she held that grudge and that again tells me that this was personal yes <laughs> this absolutely hurt her yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is quite clear. So obviously during her, her long reign, she considered a number of marriage proposals, had mm. a lot of marriage proposals. How genuine <laughs> um, the negotiations were is another question. But do you think she ever really seriously, perhaps in the early years, considered marrying Robert Dudley? Well, if at any point Elizabeth was tempted to take Robert as a husband, it would likely have been very early on in her reign. For a woman who, in her own words, had so much sorrow and tribulation and so so little joy. Being in the company of a man she loved and who loved her in return must have been a heady experience. It could have not been lost on her that if Amy Robster were to die of illness, then Robert would be free to marry her. What she had clearly not expected was for Amy to die in such suspicious and mysterious circumstances. That would have been a huge wake-up call to her, a slap in the face from reality that any romantic daydreams she may have indulged in could not possibly be realized. It would destroy them both. She was noted as being emotionally strained and stressed after Amy's death. As she has never known the woman in person, it's certainly not for grief over her death, but she might have been instead grieving the future she possibly had imagined for herself and Robert. I find that many people are stoutly unwilling to believe that Elizabeth ever managed to entertain the thought of marriage, but 
the reality is that Elizabeth made protestations both for and against the institution throughout her life. Though she often extolled the virtues of a single life, we also see her occasionally faltering and struggling with the reality of her decision to remain unmarried. In the mid-1560s, Robert renewed his pursuit of the Queen with a vengeance, and Elizabeth seemed to swing back and forth as to whether she was going to capitulate or not. According to Robert, Elizabeth had even privately told him multiple times that if she could be married to who she wished, she would choose him. A decade later, during the long Anjou marriage negotiations, Elizabeth became incredibly frustrated with her council because they were unable to reach a consensus as to whether she should accept the Duke or not, and therefore were unable to officially advise her. In a rare display of unaffected emotion, Elizabeth dissolved into tears in front of her council and demanded, might not she, like others, desire to have children? She was in her 40s, and this occurred after Robert's marriage to Latisse had been revealed. She might have been feeling the repercussions of her lifelong decision in that moment. And to me, this is such a human moment for Elizabeth, because who hasn't second-guessed themselves when making a major life decision? That being said, Elizabeth appeared to insist on her distaste for marriage for more than the few moments that she temporarily second-guessed her conviction. She laughed derisively when a German diplomat called uh, marriage a desirable evil, and in the 1580s, when Anjou presumed to far in the marriage negotiations, she finally admitted that she detested marriage for reasons she would not divulge to a twin soul. It's clear that no matter what her feelings for Robert, or for Anjou for that matter, were, as she grew older, it could not overcome her antipathy for marriage. We can speculate all we want as to the reason why her troubled childhood comes to mind, but the outcome remains the same. The long and short of it is that if Elizabeth really wanted to get married, she would have, full stop. Especially when Robert actually started to receive international and even counselor support. But Elizabeth had too firmly decided to remain unmarried by that point. Most of her marriage negotiations were entertained purely for diplomatic reasons. I think, personally, the only way Elizabeth and Robert could have reasonably gotten married is if they had somehow done so before she became queen. Perhaps in an alternate timeline in which Robert never married Amy and Edward lived just a little bit longer. A younger Elizabeth, perhaps more open to the idea of romance and marrying her beloved. But once Elizabeth actually became queen, the difficulties escalate exponentially and, and her conviction firms up. So what did people at the time, obviously this is a decades-long friendship relationship, what, what did mm. others think of their friendship? Let's call it friendship. <laughs> <laughs> For lack of a better word, yes. Uh, well, there were as many opinions as there were people. <laughs> and it's partly because of this that it can be so difficult to determine the true nature of their relationship because it seemed everyone and their mother had an opinion on it and nobody seemed to agree. <laughs> In 1565, the ambassador for the Holy Roman Emperor, who was hoping to match his son, the Archduke Charles, with Elizabeth, reported that um, Earl Robert Lester, the Queen's Master of the Horse, is a virtuous, pious, courteous, and highly moral man, whom the Queen loves as a sister, her brother, in all maidenly honour, in most chaste and honest love. Two years before that, the Duchess of Parma's ambassador in England relayed rumours that Lord Robert slept with the Queen every day like husband and wife. Well, you can't have it both ways! <laughs> Both of these reports ultimately don't reflect reality and are more of a window into how Elizabeth and Robert's relationship was twisted to accommodate each person's political goal. Those closest to Lester and the Queen also had their own opinions on things. 
Elizabeth's ladies maintained that the Queen had never been forgetful of her honour, but she perhaps accorded Lord Robert a bit too much affection than was seemly. Nevertheless, though infrequent, there were moments where Elizabeth and Robert could be alone. She often spoke to her counsellors in the dead of night, and state secrets required total privacy. And it would be impossible for her ladies, much, much less us, to know precisely what they did in those moments of seclusion. The Duke of Norfolk and Earl of Arundel complained about how Robert would kiss the Queen without being invited, with the added implication that she did not scold him for it, and he would enter her chambers before she was dressed to hand her her shift, which is akin to underwear. William Cecil notoriously distrusted and disliked how openly intimate they were with each other, so much so that he even drew up a pro and cons list comparing Robert's suit to the Archduke Charles. Surprising no one, Robert fell short in every way in, in Cecil's eyes, but Cecil was hardly unbiased. But even here, Robert grudgingly admits to Robert and Elizabeth's obvious passion for each other, because one of his cons was that carnal marriages begin with joy and end in mourning. A carnal marriage is one born out of love and passion rather than sober and honourable negotiation. Thus it was for Robert and Amy, and thus it would be for him and Elizabeth too. Or so Cecil thought. Later on, even Sussex, who could barely stand Robert, conceded that perhaps it was best to just let Elizabeth marry him, because she would probably become pregnant very quickly. <laughs> Genuinely, that was his reasoning. <laughs> of course, there were also people who actually supported and encouraged Robert's suit for Elizabeth's hand. His brother-in-law, Henry Sidney, was one of them. In a remarkable conversation with the Spanish ambassador de Quadra in 1561, Sidney claims that Robert and Elizabeth were indeed lovers, or quote, in a love affair, depending on the translation from the original Spanish, but vaguely assured the ambassador that nothing had happened that wouldn't be put right by a marriage supported by the King of Spain. Seeing as Robert got along well with his brother-in-law, this doesn't seem like an intentional attempt at slander, but Robert could have also possibly put Sidney up to it. If Sidney is being truthful, it implies that Robert and Elizabeth had indeed been intimate to some degree. A degree certainly considered improper for unmarried persons, but likely not to full consummation. This, full disclosure, is where I lie on the topic. I don't think Elizabeth would have dared to risk getting pregnant. But there are other forms of sexual intimacy that do not result in the conception of a child. <laughs> there is no hard evidence to say that Elizabeth and Robert indulged in such pleasures, but that's where I would bet my money if I had to. And I suppose given this relationship, the closeness, the connection, the obvious respect and love for one another, how did the Queen react when she discovered that her favourite had died? Very sadly. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's a yeah, heartbreaking episode. For sure. Um, it is not known exactly when or how Elizabeth was told of Robert's death. If I were to hazard a guess, I would say it was probably Cecil who took on this unenviable task. Robert had not been in good health since coming back from the Netherlands. His exhausting workload took its toll on him, and it's possible he might have been suffering from some form of stomach cancer as he had been complaining of gastrointestinal issues for a while now. While in Tilbury, his health suffered even more, and it's possible that he caught malaria from the army camp. After staying with the Queen in London, for a bit, he then left court with the goal of taking the waters at Buxton, which were natural thermal spring baths, said to have curative properties. Unfortunately, he would never make it to Buxton. On the way there, he stopped at Rycote, the home of Lord and Lady Norris, where he penned what would become his last letter to Elizabeth. It's a short, uneventful, yet deeply affectionate letter. Robert asks after her health, thanks her for the medicine she sent him, which he assures her amended much better than any other thing that hath been given me. He mentions that the letter is written from Rycote, a place where he and Elizabeth had visited together in happier times. He prays for her preservation, and in his postscript mentions a token that had just arrived for him sent by her. We don't know what this token was. 
He even added his signature Eyes Doodle as a nod to Elizabeth's nickname for him, which was Eyes. The letter was written on the 29th of August, 1588. Within six days, he was dead. Depending on how quickly the news reached her, there is even a chance that Elizabeth was informed of Robert's death on or around her birthday. What a rotten birthday gift. <laughs> she was so devastated that she had to lock herself away in her chambers for three days to grieve alone. According to a contemporary source, her doors had to be broken down by her concerned counselors who was afraid she would waste away from grief. This may have been an exaggeration, but the depths of Elizabeth's sorrow certainly was not. Elizabeth was no stranger to loss. Many people close to her had died. She mourned deeply and sincerely when the likes of Catherine Knowles and Cat Ashley died, even shed copious tears when news arrived that the Duke of Anjou had passed. Aside from Anjou, for whom her sadness must have been genuine, but the over-a-top show of devastation seems a bit performative, Elizabeth preferred to mourn in private and this is seen most intensely with Robert. With him, she simply could not face the world for a few days. Even with Anjou, she had a few ladies attending her. This time, she had completely barred access to herself. This blow absolutely floored her. I remember someone online mentioning that Elizabeth's reaction almost mirrors her grandfather, Henry VII, when his wife, Elizabeth of York, died. He, too, retracted himself from his own court for a while to privately grieve. Elizabeth managed, as in Elizabeth I, <laughs> managed to rouse herself quicker than her grandfather did, but England was in the midst of raucous celebration due to the defeat of, Ar of the Armada. Elizabeth had to be part of the public rejoicing while nursing private devastation. When the Earl of Shrewsbury sent his condolences, Elizabeth replied that, We desire rather to forbear the remembrance thereof, of a thing whereof we can admit no comfort, otherwise by submitting our will to God's inedible appointment, who notwithstanding his goodness by the former prosperous news, hath nevertheless been pleased to keep us in exercise by the loss of a personage so dear unto us. In other words, Robert's death was so painful to her, she could not bear to even think about it. Most poignantly, historian John Guy discovered that immediately after Robert's death, Elizabeth's florist bill went up. It seemed she was trying to cheer herself up by surrounding herself with flowers. Whether it worked or not is hard to say, seeing as others noted how emotionally exhausted she appeared. Probably not. Robert was not given a state funeral, probably because Elizabeth knew that the jubilant mood of the people would not tolerate the funeral of an unpopular statesman. Instead, she honored his wishes to let him be buried in the Beecham Chapel in the Collegiate Church of St. Mary's. As the executrix of his will, it was his widow Latisse who arranged the funeral and the monument. Robert wanted a plain funeral and burial to align with his now almost Puritan religious sensibilities, but Latisse opted to give him a lavish funeral fit for a nobleman of his standing a wife's last act of service to her husband, perhaps, and perhaps also a reminder to Elizabeth that no matter how much she hated it, Latisse was still his countess. Losing the man they both loved did not soften Elizabeth against Latisse. She demanded Latisse repay all of Robert's debt that he owed to the crown, which was enormous. Robert died around 50,000 pounds in debt, and half of that was owed directly to the crown. The Netherlands and Tilbury drained his coffers. In Elizabeth's slight defense, that would have been an insane amount of money to forgive, but she had occasionally helped her friends and close courtiers out of tight financial spots in the past, but that mercy evidently did not extend to Latisse. And that is an amazing tomb that they've got at the Beecham Chapel. That's one of my favorite places mm. to visit, actually. It's stunning. Absolutely it's takes absolute your breath gorgeous. away, doesn't it? Yep. I've, I've been there twice, once to take a photo next to Robert <laughs> with my dissertation. Of course. <laughs> courtesy, yes. courtesy of my partner. But yeah, it is 
stunning it, it, it makes you gasp when you first walk it really in it does it really does mm-hmm. it it really defines the word breathtaking doesn't it because you do exactly True. that when you walk in so mm-hmm. i have one more question for you a bit yeah. of a tricky question but do you think <laughs> then after all that we've talked about all the uh, clear love between them do you think he was elizabeth's greatest love the short answer is yes <laughs> the long answer is yes but it's complex <laughs> So let's get into it. Robert by no means had a monopoly on Elizabeth's affection throughout her reign. She had other favorites, notably the likes of Christopher Hatton, Walter Raleigh, and the Earl of Essex. And then there was the Duke of Anjou, who was probably the only man other than Robert that she seriously considered marrying. Robert did not rule the roost just because Elizabeth loved him. When he stepped seriously out of line, she would rebuke him fiercely, and to his credit, he would realize he pushed a boundary too far and backpedal. This way, Elizabeth ensured that no man was overconfident that he could rule her, and the reins of control remained in her hand. Robert certainly had a great deal of influence due to her favor, but there was no rule of the favorite in Elizabeth's reign that so plagued successive courts. There were even moments where it seemed that their bond had been sundered for good, but time and time again, that would be proved to be wrong. They would always find their way back to each other. All that being said, there is still a notable elevation to how close Elizabeth appeared with Robert compared to the other men. Hatton, for example, was a courtier she was also deeply fond of. He wrote her flowery love letters, and Elizabeth became enraged when there was a botched ass- assassination attempt against him. The affection between them was genuine, but Hatton firmly denied any allegations that he was Elizabeth's lover. For what it's worth, Robert never actually did the same. He just ignored them. (laughs) There was not even the hint of a rumor that Elizabeth might take Hatton to husband. That alone puts him at a lower level of intimacy than Robert. As Lucy Wooding so succinctly put it in her recent book, Elizabeth must have been in love with Robert for his suit for her hand to have been taken seriously at all. Certainly, her reaction to Robert marrying also reveals the depths of her feelings for him. Even long after any possibility of their own marriage faded and while she was being courted by someone else. But beyond more visible signs of her favor, like gifts, honors, lands, Elizabeth's deep attachment to Robert is shown in small, human, and even tender ways scattered across the sources. When he was ill or injured, she would rush to his bedside, worried for his health. One notable example of this is in 1565, when Robert fell with his horse while hunting and injured his leg. Elizabeth visited him at his bedside multiple times to check up on him. Once in 1566, after months of being apart, Elizabeth kissed him three times when they publicly reunited. The standard English greeting was a chaste kiss on the lips, but just the one. (laughs) When they quarreled, the strain of it soured her mood and made her appear ill. She feared to let him put himself in danger, such as at Le Havre or in the Netherlands, lest he die and she lose him. In a draft letter to the Earl and Countess of Shrewsbury, thanking them for entertaining Robert, she refers to him touchingly as another ourself. And of course, most poignantly, she inscribes Robert's final letter to her with the heartbreaking words, his last letter, and kept it in her possessions until her own death. That alone speaks volumes, I think. And I also want to assert, because this is one of my biggest bugbears, that the feeling was most likely mutual. (laughs) Nothing annoys me more than when people claiming that Robert was only pretending to love Elizabeth for personal gain. Because that implies that a woman as perceptive and intelligent as Elizabeth was somehow duped by the person closest to her for two decades. (laughs) That requires far more of a stretch of the imagination than the alternative, in my opinion. 
Obviously, it would be incredibly naive to claim that his devotion was purely selfless, but we have plenty of evidence to suggest that he too had an emotional attachment to Elizabeth. His letters to her are laced with an undercurrent of genuine affection and reverence, calling her my own lady and saying things like, it would be painful enough to be so long from you. He worried for her health as much as she did for him, and on more than one occasion stayed with her all night when she was ill or even nursing a toothache. He too grew agitated and distressed when Elizabeth was upset with him, and he would send letters to his allies at court speaking of his frustrations and emotional agony. During a particularly emotional reunion after a rough patch, both the Queen and the Earl of Leicester were reported to be in tears. He was said to have been unable to contemplate the Queen's marriage to anyone but himself without, quote, great repugnance. <laughs> Even after he married Latisse, he would still come out with these lines heavy with emotion, like how he would live and die only Elizabeth, and that he would rather a country be hanged and its people drowned rather than be in conceits with her. In fact, those who knew him in real life, even his enemies, never claimed that he did not really love the Queen. This was an accusation put upon him by external enemies and posterity, who did not know him personally. The issue within the court was quite the opposite. His love for her was all too obvious and was causing problems. Norfolk and a few other peers once confronted Robert in 1566, threatening him to deceased in his intimacy with the Queen for it was ruining her marriage chances. And quote, Lord Robert, with that passion, with the deprivation of the sight of so great a princess and so much beloved by him, excited, withdrew. But he had scarcely remained absent a fortnight when the Queen recalled him. And the said Lord, seeing him return, made again a very strong remonstrance. I think in many ways they were constrained by the time and society that they lived in. If they lived in the 21st century, there would be little to no issue. A man and a woman can date and live together in a committed relationship without marriage and nobody would bat an eyelid. In fact, in their fabulous book published by the National Archives to accompany an exhibition focused on love letters, they wrote of Elizabeth and Robert that, in another world or another time, they would have been made for each other. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that, I think, is something else that adds to the appeal of Robert and Elizabeth. The allure of possibility, the what if, the if only. And, you know, I I'm a sucker for melancholy. <laughs> what an extraordinary story, I have to say, and an extraordinary love story, I, I must mm. add. And I think that inscription on his last letter, it just always breaks my heart. Oh, the, the pain, it, you it, can feel her pain in that, can't you? It truly aches my heart. And I actually went to that exhibition that the National Archives put on and, and they had that letter on display. Seeing it in person is something else. <laughs> yeah, that is powerful. I teared up. That is powerful. Yeah. Now, I, I have one more. I, I know I said that was the last question. I have one more question for you, Karina. You've been very generous with your right? time already. And that is for our Tudor takeaway. So at the end of episodes, I like to ask my guests for a takeaway, something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Mm -hmm. So do you have a takeaway for us? I do. I actually might be cheeky and offer two. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and in fact, you mentioned one of them. If you would like to see an incredible depiction of Robert and Elizabeth on screen, I would highly recommend BBC's The Virgin Queen with Tom Hardy and Anne-Marie Duff, as well as the first episode of Elizabeth I by HBO with Helen Mirren and Jeremy Irons. Both of these series captured their dynamic phenomenally. I know Joseph finds from the movie Elizabeth is a crowd favorite for a lot of people. The way that movie handles his character annoys me so much. <laughs> so I uh, would actually recommend these other two in instead. I just think it provides such a wonderful look at 
that kind of push and pull between them, especially the Virgin Queen, which covers the entire reign. Elizabeth I by HBO focuses more on the later parts, especially the Anjou marriage negotiation. But the way Jeremy Irons and Helen Mirren play off of each other, you really believe that like these people have known each other since children since childhood because it's so good. <laughs> yeah. So yes, um, and and since since my passion started from you know a piece of media i hope this will also inspire others to learn more about elizabeth and her reign because it's uh, it's really fun what wonderful takeaways and i have to say i know not everyone agrees with me but tom hardy is my favorite dudley absolutely yes! love him and and that's my yes, favorite yes. elizabeth actually too so please do yeah. go and, and watch the virgin queen and, and watch uh karina's suggestions they're wonderful and i have to thank <laughs> you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to you with us Thank you so much for having me on. It's been so fun. I love nothing more than nattering on about this subject, so I really appreciate it. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.